Well, thank you. Take your Bibles now and turn with me to the book of Numbers, Numbers chapter 18. We're continuing through our, our look at Numbers the, uh, uh, as we prepare for our series on Hebrews, looking at some background information from the Old Testament that will be very helpful in our understanding of the book of Hebrews. So this is our second look at this particular book. Uh, we're starting with uh, chapter 18, but we'll actually move on further and move throughout the chapter here. Uh, read a book a number of years ago by William Faulkner's a novel that says, as, the title was As I Lay Dying. And uh, it was a story, kind of a strange story, of a person who uh, died, a lady who had died and wanted to live, wanted to be buried in a certain location a long ways away. And as a result of that, her, her family was taking her in a wagon all the way to this location to bury her. And the whole story was about people's perspective about life and, and death and so forth. And as I thought about this passage of Scripture and, and the book of Numbers, uh, that story came to my mind because here are a lot of people that are just going to soon be lay, laying in the grave. They're going, to be on the, they're going to be dying. And as they do so, well, what are they thinking? What are their perspective on life? What are they thinking about life and death and so forth? We recall back from last week in chapter 14, Israel had refused to enter the promised land after sending out 12, tri 12 spies to, to look at the land. Ten of them came back, and uh, they came back with a message that uh, it was a wonderful land, but uh, the people are too great for us, and we're just like a bunch of grasshoppers in their sight, and we'll never be able to conquer the land. Uh, there was Caleb and probably Joshua who said, yes, uh, we are like grasshoppers in their sight, but uh, we're grasshoppers for the Lord. And having made that statement, I ended up with a new t-shirt and a mug that uh, had grasshopper for Jesus on it. I'm actually wearing the shirt underneath my three-piece suit. So if anybody really wants to know, uh, we can show you that, but um, I'm sure you don't. Now, Nevertheless, uh, that's kind of where we left off the people of Israel because of their rebelliousness, do not make it into the promised land. Uh, they're at a place called Kadesh Barnea, and uh, that's just a stone throw away from being in the land, but they're, never, they're not going to make it now for the next 38 years because God says that because of their willfulness, willfulness that they uh, are not going to get into the land. Uh, they, they, there's just simply people that do not want to move forward for the Lord. So they're on, the wilderness was supposed to be a pathway to the promised land. It ended up being a graveyard. And a million, a, a million or more died here. And as I was thinking about that, over these 38 years, nobody over age 20, no man anyway, and probably most of the women, over age 20 that left Egypt made it to the promised land. They all died in the wilderness. If we add that up, having looked at the numbers here in the first couple chapters, we find that at least a million people died in the wilderness uh, during those times. Those are adults, a million adults that died. That would mean, if you, if you number it out, that between 500 and 1,000 people died every week for 38 years. 500 to 1,000 funerals every week in the land of Israel. Could you imagine what that would be like? Uh, every, every time someone died, and this was a, a culture in which there was a lot of wailing and crying when someone died, uh, as, uh, as the, every time they heard someone crying out and wailing because of the death of a loved one, every time that happened, it was a reminder of their own sinfulness. They could have been in the promised land. They could have had all that God had planned for them, but they lost it because of their rebelliousness. So for four decades, they wander around. 
As they lay dying for these 38 years, uh, yet a number of significant events take place, things that uh, they weren't just wandering around, things happened. And uh, I was going to give you three different uh, accounts, three different stories in Numbers, but as I worked through my sermon, I knew I, I couldn't get to point number three, which is about Balaam and his donkey. And I put out on our network that I was afraid to speak about donkeys this week. I didn't know what I might get from some of you. So, uh, so we're not going to do that one today. So those of you that like to take notes, uh, you got extra space in your note sheets today. But we're going to look at two stories, two accounts that God wanted us to hear about and know about concerning these people. The first one I've entitled, chapter 20, I've entitled, Two Strikes and You're Out. And we find them in verse 2 at a place... Uh, Kadesh Barnea, but it's also called later on in verse 13, Meribah, which is a place of uh, sorrow and so forth. Verse 2, it says, And there was no water for the congregation, and they assembled themselves against Moses and Aaron. And the people thus contended with Moses and spoke, saying, If only we had perished when our brothers perished before the Lord. Uh, and then we go on down in verse a four and, and why why then have you brought us out of the, of the Lord's assembly into this wilderness for us and our beasts to die here? Why have you made us to come up from Egypt to bring us to this place, this wretched place? And so we find them uh, once again complaining and belly aching about what God has done and why why and, and they don't seem to ever notice that they they're the ones that caused all this problem. And so uh, they, they're complaining about God, they're complaining about Moses, they're complaining about their situation in life. And we come to verse 8, and God is not pleased with their complaining. He says in verse 8, Take the rod, you and your brother Aaron, assemble the congregation, and speak to the rock before their eyes, that it may, bring out, it may yield water. And you shall thus bring forth water for them out of the rock, and let the congregation and their beasts drink. And so the Lord is going to do something for them here, even though he's very upset with them, very angry with them, very displeased with them, he tells Moses to go and, and to speak to the rock, and he'd give them the water that they were complaining about not having. And as they do that, Moses then makes a critical error. He makes a horrible mistake, and he will pay the price for that mistake. Matter of fact, he makes two mistakes. He, instead of speaking to the rock, he speaks to the people. And instead of... Uh, giving God the credit, he takes the credit for himself. And as a result of that, he's not allowed to go into the land. I want you to notice in verse 10, and Moses and Aaron gathered the assembly before the rock, and he said to them, Listen now, you rebels, shall we bring forth water for you out of this rock? And Moses lifted up his hand, and he struck the rock twice with his rod, and the water came forth abundantly, and the congregation and their beasts drank. Now, before we look at it a little closer, I want you to note very quickly here that this worked. This method that, didn't, that God did not give him to do, he did not tell him to do this. Moses is in defiance of God here, but his methodology worked. He struck the rock twice, and water came out. And that reminds us consistently throughout Scripture that because something works doesn't mean it's right. Because something is, is, is pragmatically working for us does not mean it's, it's God's blessing. Many a ministry, many a life, many a, 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 a church have been built on pragmatic ideas rather than biblical ones that for a time work. They don't work permanently, and they don't work toward according to God's glory, but they work as far as everybody else can see. And so when Moses defied God, it worked. Water did come out. 
But it didn't, didn't honor God, and therefore Moses is going to pay a price. There, there's two things here, as we note. First of all, he, he strikes the rock instead of speaking to the rock, and he probably does so in anger. Notice the words, you rebels. You know, he, he's, he's angry at them. Anger makes us do and say the stupidest things, don't they? You know, if somebody has said that, uh, you're, you're right, buddy. Every, we say the stupidest things when we're angry, right? Uh, someone has said that if you make a speech while you're angry, you'll make the greatest speech you'll ever regret. And that's often the case, right? Uh, so he is angry with these people. And remember, chapter 12 told us that he's the most humble man on the face of the earth. Nobody's as humble as Moses. And also he has put up with these people for years and years. And yet here he is, angry at them. And as a result of that, he, is, he strikes the rock instead of speaking to the rock as God says he should do. But the bigger issue is perhaps his taking honor away from the Lord. It says in this verse, uh, verse 10, Listen now, you rebels, and shall we bring water forth out of this rock for you. Shall we do this? And the Lord didn't miss the implication. Moses taking credit for what only God can do. Uh, later on in the book of Isaiah, chapter 42, verse 8, we have some insightful comments there. It says this, I am the Lord, that is my name, and I will not give my glory to another. The Lord does not share his glory with anyone. The glory belongs to him and not to the others. And so to claim a bit of God's glory, as Moses wanted to do here, meant that he was robbing God of who God was. He was dishonoring God. And as a result of that, he did not treat him as holy. And as a result of that, he is not allowed to go into the promised land. God does, allow, does not allow him to touch that land. You know, we, we need to be very careful with these kind of things. When, we, when, we are, when things are going well and ministries are going well and our life is going well and, and we think things are just in, right in place and we begin to want to say, well, it's because of me. I, look what I have done. Look what I've orchestrated. Look at the steps I've taken. Look at my leadership. Look at all these things. And we forget that while Scripture tells us we can plant and we can cultivate and we can water, only God can give the increase. Nothing ever flourishes God's way unless God is the one that orchestrates that and is behind it. We're thankful to be instruments that he uses, but we're never uh, all that. There's only room on the throne for one person, and that is God himself. And therefore Moses, for, for just a moment, seemed to have forgot that. And as a result of forgetting the glory of God, he pays this terrible price. And he will die in the wilderness along with all the others. What, what a tragic thing. Moses is one of the big three of the Old Testament. Abraham, Moses, and David. Uh, he is honored by the Jewish people forever. One of the big, biggest names, the most consistently godly people of the Old Testament. And yet he fails at this point. And it cost him as a result. And he doesn't make the promised land. He gets to see it, remember, from a mountaintop. But he never gets to step on the land. But that's not altogether true. Years later, 1,400 years later or so, we find him on what we call the Mount of Transfiguration in Matthew 17. He's with Jesus himself, and he stands where? On the promised land. 1,500 years later, he now stands on the land. And so God, God is gracious to him. Of course, he's also in paradise with the Lord, which is even better. 
And so we have this first episode here. We see these people now, once again, struggling. But we go to chapter 21. We want to see another very interesting story, I think. I'm going to call this one Look and Live. In the first three, three verses of chapter 21, they have had a victory over a powerful enemy. So they're not just in the wilderness wandering. They're running into various opponents and they're fighting them for God. God gives them victory most of the time. And they have a victory here at that point in time. And so uh, they, they are now going around the place of Edom, which is outside of the promised land. And remember, Edom is a, a nation of descendants of Esau. And Esau, you recall, was the brother of Jacob, who was re renamed Israel. And therefore, uh, the Edomites are relatives or cousins, so to speak, of the Jews. And as a result of that, God said to Israel, when you go into the land, you are to leave them alone. You don't mess with the Edomites. Uh, you, don't, you don't try to uh, dis uh, displace them from the land. You don't harm them in any way. You simply go around them. And so that's what they were doing at this particular juncture. They were trying to go around the Edomites. And as they were doing that, we, we uh, see in verse 4, that they set out for Mount Hor, and by the way of the Red Sea to go around the land of Edom, and the people became impatient because of the journey. So as they're going around this section here, they get impatient. They get, uh, once again, their, their attitudes are going down, downhill quickly. And as they do that, we find in verse 5, it says, The people spoke against God and Moses. Why have you brought us out of the land of Egypt to die in the wilderness? For there's no food and no water, and we loathe this miserable food. And so they're once again complaining, just like they seem to do all the time. Matter of fact, the words we find here in this verse are almost identical to Exodus 16.3, which is before they even got the law, before the Ten Commandments. And just months outside of Egypt, they said the exact same words, and now here they are all these years later, 40 years later, and they're saying basically the same thing. They don't want to grow up. They're, they're like Peter Pan. Remember Peter Pan? He, he didn't want to grow up. He refused to grow up. And they're, they're Peter Pan believers. There's a lot of Peter Pan Christians in this world. Uh, they're, they're saved, but they don't want to grow up. They want to continue in their babyhood, and that's the way Israel was here. So the Lord is going to do what he often does. He's going to bring judgment upon them because they refuse to uh, follow him and because of their complaining. It says in verse 6, And the Lord sent fiery serpents among the people and the bit the people so that many of Israel died. A very unique situation. By fiery serpents here, he's speaking of poisonous snakes. Uh, and think about this. Now the whole, the whole camp of these million, two million people, whatever it was, are filled with poisonous snakes. Could you think about that for a moment? Like something out of an Alfred Hitchcock or a Stephen King movie. Could you imagine that? You know, there's a lot of phobias going around, about a few thousand phobias that you could identify. And there's a phobia for snakes, and I looked the word up and I can't pronounce it. Surprise. Tell you what, there's a difference between a phobia where there's really no danger and a phobia where there is, is a danger. And when it comes to snake, I don't know about you, I'm pretty much fearful of snakes for the right reasons. You know, I don't want snakes in my bed. I don't want them running around my living room. Uh, I can look at a, a snake that uh, looks like a copperhead, and I remember reading that that snake with all of its markings looks a lot like another snake that is not harmful at all. And so as I'm 10 feet away from that snake, 
my mind begins to think about was this a copperhead or a, or a harmless snake and my mind cannot compute that fast right I don't know, know that I care I'm just out of there and so it would be most of you right and so when these snakes start coming up here and these people started getting bit in a in painful way and they start to die well, that's a bad thing right that's a horrible thing and God's got their attention verse 7 so the people came to Moses and said we've sinned now this is typical they do this over and over and over when they come face to face with their problems and God punishes them they say we have sinned because we have spoken against the Lord and you inter and you intercede with the Lord that he may remove the serpents from us and Moses interceded for the people so again they come to Moses, they want help, they want to be relieved of all this suffering. Then God does a very unique thing. Now, this is so unique, and God want, and there's a real reason why this happens, we'll see. In verse 8, the Lord said to Moses, Make a fiery serpent, and set it on a standard, and it shall come about that if, if anyone, everyone who is bitten, when he looks at it, he shall live. So he's make a bronze serpent, he's put it on a, a high pole, and whenever anybody would look at that bronze serpent, uh, they would be healed of the poisonous bite of the snakes, right? Now that tells us a few things. First of all, that means that the snakes didn't go away for a while. That people were still being bitten by poisonous snakes. They were still hanging around. And every time they were bitten, they had a choice. They now could, uh, could look at this bronze serpent, or they could not. And if they looked at the bronze serpent... They were healed. If they didn't, guess what? They died, right? And so you say to yourself, well, who would be foolish enough or stubborn enough not to look at the serpent? I mean, what, what kind of person wouldn't do that? Well, apparently some, or he wouldn't have mentioned this at all. So let's, let's, let's take a scenario. Uh, Charlie, that's a good Hebrew name, has been bitten by a snake. And Reuben comes along and says, Charlie, you are, you are bitten by a poisonous snake. You're swelling up like a toad. You're going to die. And uh, Charlie says, oh, I'll be just fine. And Reuben says, wait a minute. The Lord has made provisions. All we have to do is look at that bronze uh, statue there, that serpent there that has been made, and look at that, and we'll be healed. And Charlie says, ah, oh, that can't possibly work. That's too easy. We've got to come up with something else. But Reuben says, I, I was bitten... Two days ago, I looked at the, at the bronze serpent, and I'm healed. Look, I'm, I'm healthy. And thousands upon thousands have done the same thing. Why don't you do it? Ah, too easy. I'll, do, I'll put some essential oils on it. You know? <laughs> uh, or I'll, grandma, grandma had a potion, and I'll, I'll do granny's potion. That'll work. Or I'll, I'll eat some er herbs or something. I'll do something that'll fix this problem. I'm not going to be so superstitious as to look at that bronze serpent. And so Charlie sits there and swells up till he dies. What a ridiculous thing. There are two other mentions now of this incident. I, I want to read verse 9, and I'm going to look at two instances. And Moses made a bronze serpent and set it on the standard, and it came about if a serpent bit any man, when he looked at the bronze serpent, he lived. Okay. But there's two other occasions in the Bible where this serpent is mentioned. One of you may, uh, you may not be aware of. Go to, to 2 Kings chapter 18, verse 4. The only other mention of this serpent in the Old Testament. 2 
Second Kings chapter 8 and verse 4. And we move ahead about 700 years in time, and King Hezekiah is on the throne. And the people of Israel have been in their typical idolatrous, stubborn, rebellious situation. Hezekiah comes to the throne, and he's going to make things right with God. And so he has to clean house. And as he does so, verse 3, he, and he did right in the sight of the Lord, according to all that his father David had done. And he removed the high places, those were places where pagans worshipped, and he broke down the sacred pillars, those idols that they worshipped. He cut down the ashram, a female deity that they worshipped. And then he also broke in pieces the bronze serpent that Moses had made. For until those days the sons of Israel burned incense to it and called it Neheshton. Now would you look at that? This bronze serpent has been around for 700 years. They've carried it all the way with them throughout all these. We've never heard of it in other places, but now here it is. And what we find they've been doing pretty much throughout time is worshiping it. <laughs> now, doesn't that speak to human nature? As we look around us at, at paganized Christianity, everywhere you look, throughout the history of the church, you find people worshiping things that were supposed to point us to God. But instead, they, they become our idols. In the Middle Ages, relics were big. Everybody had to have a relic, a bone of John the Baptist, um, the milk of Mary, a, a piece of the cross. Some people still do that today. Uh, those were, were supposed to somehow get us an extra boost to heaven. Uh, they, today, people still are praying to the saints and praying to the apostles and praying to, to Mary and they're putting little statues on their, their dashboards to give them safety. Or they're burying some other statue upside down in the yard to sell their real estate. All sorts of superstitious things, going to icons and, and so forth to, to sit down and bow before them and worship. All those things that were probably supposed to have a place, most of them, but nevertheless they have superseded God and were worshiping the wrong thing. Human nature hasn't changed very much, has it? And so Hezekiah does what he has to do. He destroys it. He, burn, he gets rid of it. 700 years. And somebody was going to say, oh, that's a wonderful piece of art. How can you get rid of that? Well, he did. Because he wouldn't stop worshiping something that had become an idol to them. But there's another time when this is all mentioned. And that is in the New Testament. In a wonderful passage in John chapter 3. And I want you to turn there. John chapter 3. And you have read this many, many times, but you might have glossed over it because of all the wonderful stuff that is found here in this particular chapter. This is one of the great chapters of the New Testament of all the Bible. In John chapter 3, we know that as a backdrop that Nicodemus has come to Jesus. Nicodemus is a man who's searching for life. He is a teacher of the Jews. He uh, knows the scriptures. He spends most of his time studying scripture, trying to be holy, but he knows there's something wrong in his life. He knows there's, a, knows there's a hole in his life. He knows that something is desperately wrong with him, and he doesn't know how to find it. And so he comes to Jesus by night, and they have one of the great conversations ever recorded in all of history, not only the scriptures, and Jesus begins to talk to him about the, what he misses is is true life from above to be born again. 
Nicodemus, you have all the rigmarole, you have all the rituals, you have all the, the stuff, but you don't, have, you don't have life. And I'm going to tell you how to get life. Life is going to be found in me. It's going to be eternal life. It's going to be your, it can be your life. And so all that's in chapter 3. But we come to verses 14 and 15 when this serpent is mentioned. And like I said, because we want to hurry off to verse 16, the best known verse in the Bible, we, all, we can very easily skip over these two verses. Verse 14 says, as Moses lifted up, the, Jesus is speaking to Nicodemus. He says, as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, even so must the Son of Man be lifted up, so that whoever believes in him, believes Will in, will in him have eternal life. So he points back for the second time in Scripture, only the second time, he points back to the serpent in the wilderness. Now, I think I just went through the story of the serpent, and we're reading this account. There is no accident here. Jesus himself points back to this incident in the wilderness, to the serpent. And he draws a conclusion. The serpent was a a symbolic instrument, what some call a type, that points to a, a spiritual significance in the New Testament. And that significance is Christ. Look at four connections between the serpent in the wilderness and what Nicodemus is hearing from Christ. First of all, death resulted as a punishment for sin. In the Old Testament, they were rebellious and sinful, and God sent serpents to poison them and kill them. So death was a punishment for sin. Jesus is telling Nicodemus, here's your problem, Nicodemus. By human standards, you are a good man. You are a moral man. You are a well-taught man. You teach the people of Israel. But you don't recognize the, in the, deep, the depth of sin in your life. That sin will be punished and you will die eternally. That's the first connection. Here's the second one. God himself in grace provides the remedy. In the Old Testament, the remedy was a, was a bronze serpent on a, on a pole that they could look to. And Nick, as Jesus talks to Nicodemus, he says, even so must the Son of Man be lifted up. The, the, the means, the remedy is the Son, it's Jesus. But he's not done. Here's a third connection. The remedy in the Old Testament would lead to something that must be lifted up. Something must be lifted up to find the remedy. And that would be the serpent. In the New Testament, Jesus says, the Son of Man must be lifted up. Now, I don't think Nicodemus had a clue what Jesus was talking about. But we know from our perspective, he's talking about the cross. He would be lifted up on the cross. The, the, the method would be the cross. And then finally, the fourth connection is the response. How did the people in the Old Testament respond? Now look at verse 15. So that whoever believes will in him have eternal life. In the Old Testament, all they had to do was to look at the bronze serpent, to believe God, to trust God, to do what God says to do. And when they did, they were physically healed. And Jesus says, concerning me, I give, I give eternal salvation to all who believe in me, who turn to me. So by the way, let's think about this. We have the full gospel right here. Look at it. The problem of humanity is sinfulness. You might have a number of problems today. We all do. 
some more serious than others, but your worst problem, your most deep-seated problem, the problem you can do nothing about, is sin. And you will be punished eternally for that reason. But, secondly, the gospel tells us the means of salvation is found in Christ. That Christ himself is the means of dealing with sin. He is the only remedy for sin. And the method, well, that's the cross. He didn't simply live a good life. He did. But he went to the cross. And he shed his blood for us. And then the response. What is your response? The response, I mean, like my friend Charlie, he could die in the wilderness because he wouldn't look. And Jesus said, all who believe in him, all who believe in him, would have eternal life. So the gospel is right here. What a picture. And then he goes to the greatest gospel verse in scripture, verse 16, which summarizes everything about it. Verse 16, we all know this one. If you ever watched a football game, you've seen John 3:16, right behind the goalpost, right? For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son, that whoever believes in him shall not perish but have eternal life. Eternal life. So God, it says, here it is, what motivated God's love for sinful people? What motivated God's love for you? You, you might think you're pretty hot stuff. You're not. Matter of fact, if you think you're pretty hot stuff, you're in trouble. Because God says you're, you're woefully inadequate, you're steeped in sin, and you have no hope in yourself. No hope. And he says that in this same verse, that if you do not believe in him, you will perish in this most hopeful and beautiful verses, it doesn't just trip along with the hope. It tells you you will perish if you do not believe in Him. You will die eternally in a place we usually call hell for rejection of Him. But it need not be that way because God so loved the world. What does He mean by world? I was going to take you to First John and other places to show you how He talks about the world, but I don't think I'm going to have time but the world system, as John uses it throughout his epistles and his gospel, is that world system that rejects God. It's those people who have turned against him, who have stubbornly rebelled against him. The world system is made up of sinful humanity, of ungodly wickedness. It's a willful rebellion, just like the people of Israel had. And yet it says, and this is important to recognize that as he uses the word world, he's not talking about a lot of benevolent good people. He's talking about a lot of rebellious people. A world filled with rebels and defiant people. And he said God loved them anyway. God so loved the world that he gave it the greatest gift possible, his very own son. To die for us to die in our place, so that whoever, whoever believes in him shall not perish, but have eternal life. That's what Nicodemus wanted, that eternal life. But he could not find it in himself, and all he tried, but Jesus says, it's found in me. It's in me. If you believe in me, you will find eternal life. And he's not talking simply about some kind of mental assent. Yeah, I believe in that stuff, you know. Go, go on and look a little further. He says in verse 18, he who believes in him is not judged, and he who does not believe has been judged already because he has not believed in the name of the only begotten Son of God. This is the judgment that the, the light has come into the world, and men loved the darkness rather than the light, for their deeds were evil. 
For everyone who does evil hates the light and does not come to the light for fear that his deeds will be exposed. But he who practices, notices, practices the truth, comes to the light so that his deeds might be manifested as having been wrought in God. He's not talking about just a mental ascent. He's talking about turning from sin and turning to Christ. And the evidence of that in verse 21 is that we practice the truth. You don't practice the truth to be saved. You practice the truth because you are saved. It's a change that he has made. We're born again. We're new creatures. And now we desire to live for him. And so that's who he's talking about here. Now, the question is this, as we plug all this back into our, our story in the Old Testament, why would anyone reject this? You know, maybe you're here and you're not a Christian or you're not sure you're a Christian. Why would anyone reject that? Why would anybody not accept that? Why did my friend Charlie not look at the bronze serpent? Well, there's only two possible reasons I can think of as to why someone would not turn to the remedy for physical life and healing or the remedy for spiritual life and eternal life uh, that God promises. There's only two possible reasons. One is ignorance. They simply don't know. Uh, that Nicodemus didn't know certain things that were being given here. And yet I find it a little hard to believe that uh, the people in the Old Testament didn't know about that bronze serpent up ahead. Surely everybody was talking about it. And quite frankly, I'll be honest with you, I think it's a little preposterous to say people in America don't know about Jesus. Sometimes we hear all oh, the people have never heard the name of Jesus. They haven't turned the TV on then. Every media platform blasphemes the name of Jesus regularly. They heard the name of Jesus all over the place. They, they celebrate Christmas, which they know is about the birth of Jesus. They talk about Easter, although they mutilate it, because they know it talks about the resurrection. They hear about the second coming of Christ, and they, they believe in something. They, hear, they know about Jesus, but they don't know that Jesus is truly the Savior. And why not? Because of what Jesus says right here. They love darkness rather than light. They hate, he says. The light. And the light in my Bible is capitalized and it should be. It's speaking about Jesus. The world hates Jesus. Left to ourselves, everyone hates Jesus, even those who claim they don't hate Jesus. Because if you don't follow him, then you hate him. And so the word light here, they hate him. They don't want their deeds exposed. They don't want to come to a place where they see the truthfulness of their sinfulness and have to deal with that. And so they continue to reject him. They continue to trip on down throughout their life without the Lord Jesus, who has come for the express purpose to give us eternal life. How sad is that? And so that Old Testament picture is not just a story of the Old Testament. It points straight to the cross. It's a beeline straight to Jesus Christ and what he has done for us. Charles Spurgeon, and if you come to this church, you've heard Charles Spurgeon's name many times, a great preacher of the 19th century. He got saved as a teenager, basically. His, his testimony is right in line with this. He was in a snowstorm, and he went into a primitive Methodist church to get out of the storm. A preacher that day in this little church was not the regular preacher. The regular preacher was not there, and so it was a layman preaching. He didn't know much about the Bible. But he was preaching on uh, the subject. And his message went like this. Young man, he said. I don't know if he's looking straight at Spurgeon or not. Spurgeon thought he was. He says, young man, look to Jesus Christ. Look, look, look. 
You have nothing to do but to look and live. And Spurgeon said this, And I saw it once at the way of salvation. I know not what else he said. I did not take much notice of it. I was so possessed with that one thought. Like as when the brazen serpent was lifted up, the people only looked and were healed, and so it was with me. I had been waiting to do 50 other things. When I heard that word, look, what a charming word it seemed to me. Oh, I looked until I could have looked my eyes away. There and then the cloud was gone. The darkness had rolled away. And in that moment, I saw the sun. And I could have risen that instant and sung with the most enthusiastic of them of the precious blood of Christ and the simple faith which says, look to him alone. Oh, that somebody had told me this before. Trust in Christ and you shall be saved. And we know what the Lord did in his life because of that. My friends, that's the same message you and I have. Uh, we're giving you the message of look and live. Look to Jesus Christ. If you're here today and your sins are still in your life and you have not turned to Christ and looked to Him with belief and trusted to Him for eternal salvation, He doesn't say you have to take 50 steps to get there. He says, look to Christ who died for you on the cross of Calvary because God sent Him because God loves you. Place your faith in Him and today the darkness can roll away and you can have life and life eternal. Father, this uh, unusual story of the Old Testament really speaks to our heart when we see what it means. We thank you for it, Father, and we pray today for your work in the lives of each person that might be here. Draw them to you, Lord, that do not know you as Savior. And may for all of us who do know you, Lord, may these be heartwarming and encouraging thoughts of what you have done for us in Christ. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.